When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi, my name is Harry. My dad is the CEO of Intelligence Squared. I have four things to say. First of all, Intelligence Squared runs amazing online debate courses and camps for kids with a great organisation called Debate Me. I've taken two of them. They were awesome. It made me feel self-confident. Now I don't feel shy. Second, if you don't live in the UK but want to do a course, Intelligence Squared will put on one for you if you can get at least 10 kids to sign up. This means you can live anywhere in the world and get the best Oxford-style debating training. My third point is, please go to intelligencesquared.com slash mydebate for more details. And in closing, here's my final statement. Debate Mate also works with adults and professionals. Same deal. Form your own group or class at least 10 people. Fill out a form at intelligencesquared.com slash mydebate and we'll put on the course whenever works for you. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by John Micklethwaite and Adrian Woolridge to talk about their new book, The Wake Up Call, Why the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weakness of the West and How to Fix It. And in conversation with the head of Economist Radio, Anne McElvoy, they delved into the questions of whether we're seeing a shift in innovation, excellence, and even good governance from West to East, as we're seeing countries like South Korea, Japan, and China get to grips with the coronavirus, while it seems to be ravaging countries in North America and Europe. Europe in its second wave. It's a really fascinating conversation and it goes well beyond questions of simply just the pandemic. It looks at education, business, government and the future of liberalism. If you do enjoy it, you might enjoy the book or even the audiobook read by the actress Kristen Scott Thomas. And you can find a link and details for that in the podcast description. Now, let's go to the episode. Thank you so much and great to be with you this evening and beyond in, in cyberspace. With me are two guests who've thought a lot about the world that we're facing really as we make our way through the pandemic and we look to what might happen beyond it, how we might influence that for the better, which sounds a little bit upbeat given what we're up against right now, but we do need to think beyond the immediate trials and and tribulations. And we have a really interesting take, I think, from John Micklethwaite and Adrian Wooldridge in their book, which is why the pandemic has exposed the weaknesses of the West and how to fix it. They call it a wake-up call. And I'm going to start by asking them why it is a wake-up call, which in a way is like asking them what the book is about. John Micklethwaite. It's a wake-up call, we think, in two different ways. The first way is that it is the time where it showed that government really mattered. Good government this time was the difference between living and dying. And you can see that in Britain, you can see that in America, you can see that in the comparative statistics, which are really quite frightening. You look at Britain, and we're above 600 deaths for every million people. In America, 
it's closing in on that number, which is remarkable given the size of the, the, the country and the, and the lateness it came to it. You go to Canada, it's around 250 deaths per million, so more than twice as good, if you can put it that way. Germany's 100 deaths per million, six times as good. You go to East Asia and you find countries like Japan, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan. They're all around 20, 30, 40 deaths per million. Australia, New Zealand far, aren't far off that too. China claims a number of three deaths per million. And we can all be a bit suspicious about that. But imagine that they're hiding 90% of their deaths. Well, that would still put them up to a number around 30, roughly the same as the other Asian countries. What's interesting about that, that is still 20 times, not kind of 20% more, 20 times better than America. And that really takes us to the second point of the book, is that we think it is a wake-up call for the West, not just in telling people that government matters, but also in the sense that we have had 500 years ruling the roost. Um, 500 years ago, China was a much more powerful figure. China was the center of the world, a quarter of the world's economy. We were a very backward sort of archipelago at one end of Eurasia, full of rather savage practices, no government really at all. The West overtook China dramatically. By the 1960s, America was putting a man on the moon. Millions of Chinese were dying of starvation. Now look at the picture. China, at least on this measure, is governing pretty well, obviously with some severe problems to do with COVID at the very beginning of it. But at the very least, I don't think anybody in the United States would have expected something as basic as you know, what providing government, providing safe security, those sort of things, for the Chinese to be 20 times better at this, let alone those other countries of Asia. And what we're worried about is that the, the thing that the West rose by being good at, which was government alongside some other things, is now become a weakness. And so that's the reason why we're saying wake up. Adrian Waldridge, if I were to just be a little cynical about this, I would say, well, a lot of people, probably including John Micklethwaite and Adrian Waldridge, have been telling me for years that there was a wake up coming from Asia, that a lot of the best and more innovative policy solutions and ideas were coming from Asia. And I needed to sort of wake up in my sleepy Western ways. And COVID seems to have simply made this story, this this narrative move faster and further why would it especially be right in the context of the pandemic and the post-pandemic world, other than as, as your co-author John Micklethwaite says, well, the outcomes seem to be better. But that's, it's not quite the same as saying the whole recipe for change after COVID is better. What's your view on that? Well, I think that most people have focused on the economic dynamism of the East rather than on its political success. That we've had a lot of people talking about how... China has been growing at an extraordinary rate. We've had a lot of people talking about how many of the world's best new companies are arising in East Asia and Asia more generally rather than in, in the West. We've had a sense that Japan was a threat. We then had a sense that, that China was a threat, but always a threat couched in terms of their economic power and economic nimbleness. What we argue in this book is that there's a second revolution that's gone on in the East, which we've been slightly blind to, and that is a political revolution. They've got really good at governing, quite often, and they've got very innovative in the way that they, that, that they govern. And we start off by pointing to Singapore, saying in, from the 1960s onwards, under Lee Kuan Yew, Singapore created a model of government that is a challenge to the West in all sorts of fascinating ways. It was a model of government that is politically meritocratic, rather than democratic in our way. It's a, a model of government that is proudly non-egalitarian, that believes in the best and the brightest being given more rewards than everybody else, whereas we tend to, the egalitarian, increasingly tend to the egalitarian side. And it's a model that is very abstemious about the welfare state. Lee Kuan Yew talked about and hating the West's idea of a welfare state as an all-you-can-eat buffet. He was much more abstemious. So what you have is a model of providing public welfare that's fundamentally different from the Western model. And, well, Singapore's what, a, a country of five million people. What we argue in this book is that model is being taken up by this giant out there, which is China. And you know, many people have said of China that it's brutal, that it's repressive, that it's an autocracy, and those are all true. But what happens if China's direction of evolution is not 
towards this terrible, brutal monstrosity, but towards a really clever form of authoritarianism, a, a giant Singaporean form of uh, authoritarianism. So what we argue in this book is that the threat to the West is much bigger and much more sophisticated than we've realized in the past. And what COVID does is to demonstrate that that looks to be true. Let's put aside for one moment, I, I suspect we might get some questions around this, and I'd also like to press you on whether these societies are as, as beneficial for those who, who live in them as, as perhaps you suggest there, Adrian. But as we're in the context of, of COVID and a new tightening here in, in the UK, in various parts of the country, and possibly also in London, where, <laughs> where we're, we're speaking at a time where we really don't know uh, what the situation will be, but it seems to, if anything, be looking like a, you know, it's something towards a kind of second tightening or even lockdown territory. Do you believe the COVID figures that you're working with are absolutely telling and accurate and comparable? Because that would seem to be my worry is trying to follow this in audio and working in audio and writing sometimes uh, print work about it week to week, I find that the information changes very fast. And yet you've published a book in which you're able to conclude, and John Micklethwaite, perhaps I'll turn this question to you, that you could say that China has succeeded by a factor of X where the West has failed. Uh, one, how are you so sure about that information? And even if we look to the Western democracies, Germany looks very compelling on papers, done a very good job. Lots of differences between the federal states on their response to COVID and its success rate. So how can you really measure this? Well, I think two things. One, the numbers um, are so extreme. I mean, remember with China, I said China claims a number of three. Well, I multiplied that by 10. Nobody in Britain would, uh, would, would be happy if we multiplied our number by 10 or divided it by 10. And in this case, you know, this is 20 times better. It's not It's not like three or four times better. Imagine Angela Merkel. Imagine we're being a little bit too generous to Angela Merkel. Imagine she's hiding half what's going on there. Germany would still be massively better than the UK, only two or three times rather than six times. You know, we, we all work in the private sector where if you are 10% better than someone else, that's an enormous advantage. In government, you're now looking at numbers which are that different. And, and it's not just that. It's, it, we talked about deaths per million because it's an attempt to equal it up. You just mentioned London. This is perhaps the most telling statistic. London has had 6,000 deaths. At one period, we lost more people in London than during the worst four weeks of the Blitz. Go to New York, a similar-sized city. Over 20,000 people have died in New York. You know, these are real solid statistics. In Seoul, a country which is democratic, where the capital of Korea, it's, it's a big city, slightly bigger than London or New York. They have lost five dozen people, 50, 60 people. It depends exactly. Again, there's a debate about how you measure it. The debate is whether it's 50 yeah. people or whether it's 60. Compare that with 6,000. So can you put your finger that? on what's going on there? Well, I, I know that you you want us to make big systemic comparisons, but that, as you say, seems extraordinary. And if you were, I'll turn the question to Adrian in just a moment, but if you were to pick out, what's the big difference? I think the biggest, what is I think the biggest difference is testing. They got, they got it underway. You can get testing pretty much everywhere in Korea very quickly. And I just want to stress one thing is that sometimes people think of these Asian companies, countries being amazingly homogenous and very sort of staid. Seoul is the place that gave you Parasite that won the Oscar. It's the home of K-pop, which I know you um, listen to all the time. And it's also the place, Thank you, John. the home, Adrian can attest, of the world's biggest nightclubs. You know, this is a place where people are, uh, went wild quite happily, but because they had much better testing, much better systems of being able to do it. They had a much better city government led by a mayor who was famous for being, you know, working hard with particular districts. London, we had a lot of heroism. Um, we have the new hospitals being built very quickly, but by any measure, testing was terrible. And we made a strategic mistake as Public Health England decided not to bring in private testing. It decided to hang on to everything itself. Well, that was a terrible mistake. You know, other parts of the book were very rude about America for not having a public health system, which really does in the poor. But if you wanted an answer as to why why it's different, that's that's the key bit. Adrian, your your take on that? Simply a, re a reduction to testing. John said there he thought that the private sector should have been activated 
much earlier, but would that really have made the difference? How much of this is about path dependency and culture? Uh, I think very little is about path dependency and culture. I think, I'm, as Don was saying, if you look at the culture of South, there's a, there's a school of thought very, very strong in the United States that says, well, we're individualists and we can't really be corralled. They over there in the Far East are part of this collective homogenous culture, and so they just do what they're told. I don't think that that's true. I, th- I would add to what John said, uh, speed, I think, is of the essence. We were very, very, very slow to respond to all these signals. This all unfolded you know, much earlier in China and the Far East. We, ha- we were in, the, in an ideal position, really, to study them, to look at what they'd done right, to look at what they'd done wrong, and to get ourselves prepared for this tsunami that was coming. The Economist had on the cover of, of, of for the 27th of February. It's going global. And we just didn't respond. Boris Johnson didn't go to the first five, mm. five Cobra meetings on this. We had a chance to look at what the Far East was doing, and we didn't bother to study them. You were saying earlier that we sort of, we all knew that Asia was quite good at lots of things. Well, we clearly didn't know. We were too arrogant to imagine that people in far off parts of the world actually might know how to deal with this thing. They mandated wearing masks very early on. We took, we dithered about that. Over. So yes, John's right about uh, about test and trace, but there was in every single area, we were just slow. We were slow to get PPE as the global price went up. We were slow to, to, to get tests as, a, as the global availability of those tests went down and the things that go into making the test work went down. We, was, we were very cloth-footed. I was actually talking to a very senior person. I wouldn't say exactly where, but uh, n- not unconnected with the with, with best parts of government. And I was saying, you know, this, that and the other, rather ranting about what had gone wrong. And they just paused for a while and said, you don't know the half of it. I think it's worse than we imagined in terms of in terms of, uh, of being a mess. And in terms of how you view this, I might just come back perhaps to Asia and China in a, in, in a moment. But I'm interested. I mean, it'd be you know, it, it would take a Google click for people to work out that John Micklethwaite's ex-editor of the Economist, Aldridge, your budget at the Economist. But you do live in different worlds now, to the extent that John is very frequently in America uh, and in New York at Bloomberg, and you are occasionally a sort of delightful, occasionally grumpy presence on a Zoom call, uh, writing your, your budget column in the UK, Adrian. Are there things that you see differently because of the experiences that you've had, either looking at the impacts of COVID, covering COVID, or indeed from your your friends, your staffs and, and your families? John, in terms of the US perspective, I think people will be very interested to hear a bit from you on that, not least given the fact that the, the president succumbed to, to COVID and it's become a part of the election campaign. I think there is there was a difference between Britain and America and quite, quite a big one. I think there is there was certainly much more rallying around the flag rather strangely in Britain than in America. I mean, for a long time, we were I think we were much more inclined to believe our government. Uh, and to be fair, I think pretty much up to the moment when Dominic Cummings decided to go on his eyesight improvement voyage, um, there was quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of standing behind the government in in, in America. Mm-hmm. Almost from the from the get go, Trump sort of polarized things. He he went he refused to deal with some Democratic governors. Boris dithered, was lazy, didn't attend meetings, and, and missed opportunities to save lives. But he didn't sort of angrily insult scientists in the way that Trump did. And so I think in America, it it has been different. You can see the arguments still continuing. I think I think Trump missed a bigger thing, which it's harder to lay at Boris's feet. I mean, you know, (laughs) Boris did not do well at this. He's got a worse number still than Trump overall. But but in one way, at least, I think you can really point towards something that Trump failed to do. This is the first big global crisis where America has failed. And do you think it's, it matters? I'll just stay on Trump for a moment and then throw Boris over to, to Adrian. Do you think it matters in terms of the the election campaign? Yes, I think... The trend seems fairly settled, but you you know, you, you have, gosh, I should imagine a gazillion reporters and yeah. <laughs> analysts at your disposal. Do you think it really makes I think, much of a difference at all? I think I think several things. One, the, the split... The, the, the arguments about COVID did go in somewhat partisan lines. You ended up with Republicans, even elderly Republicans, sometimes joining the no mask wearing side. But in general, in general, I don't think this is difficult. The, the COVID is a, has been a disaster zone for Trump as a, as a, it, because again, a little like Boris, populists are not great managers. 
Um, he did not organize this well. He, it has not played to his strengths. And you can see it again in the polls when he very sadly got the disease himself. Um, and he started, and he's dealt with it. We claims to have dealt with it. But even then, I think that mostly merely by returning the subject to COVID, that has not helped him. He was much stronger when they were dealing things like urban violence. Again, I think there's a number which Adrian at least claims is true that if you look at on one day, more people had COVID in the White House, in the Trump White House, than I think it's Taiwan, Singapore, and Australia combined. You know, this is that's on October the first. first, exactly. So we have a we have a date for it, but but that I think is the core of it. In America, and America, I think is only slightly later than Britain is beginning to realise just how badly it did. And I think the other the last thing about America is that. That vision of America outside that people looked and saw this country, as I said earlier, did, did not lead the Western alliance. You know, first time America's really failed to do that. And, but has it changed the likelihood of the election result, John Micklethwaite? Yes or yes, no? Yes, definitely. You know, without COVID, Trump's had a very good chance. But his complete failure to do it, you see a conservative movement in America now, which is hanging together largely on the basis that, that it wants conservative judges. On all other things, it's an extremely disorganized and a difficult mood. And it's a lot of that's down to Trump. Adrian, Boris Johnson, you mentioned, uh, made clear you weren't much of a, a fan of, of the record. There's a, quite a lot of, sort of Boris bashing in the air. But did it change anything that he himself had COVID? He seemed, at least to me, having watched Boris Johnson for a number of decades, I mean, he seems to be eternally on his way to, to, to number 10, really, for about the last 30 years. But it did seem to sort of change his bearing and his outlook. Whether it changed policy, I'm not so sure. What do you think? Well, I think that he is suffering. I suspect that he's suffering from long COVID, or at least the after effects of, of, of this problem. He seems less buoyant, although he gave quite a buoyant speech to Conservatives' virtual conference this week. He seems uh, less focused. His concentration, his memory for detail seems to be poorer. He seems to lose his way more, and he seems to be less energetic. So I think it took a lot. It did take a lot out of him personally. And I think his whole style is the style of somebody who does big-picture stuff, and this is something that requires a lot of detail. His whole style is one of optimism. We'll get through this. Everything will be right. But things seem to be getting worse Certainly, bland optimism is not the, the, the right approach to this. And I often think, conduct this sort of thought experiment myself. What would have happened if we'd had Jeremy Hunt rather than Boris Johnson as prime minister? I mean, the, Well, you probably wouldn't have had a majority of 80, as Jeremy Hunt himself conceded. Yeah, I think you wouldn't have had a majority of 80, but, but you'd have probably got a majority because, because they're basically of the disaster of Corbyn on the other side, whose appeal, such as it was, had waned completely. And I think that uh, Jeremy Hunt is, uh, you know, having run the, the National Health Service for six years, being a details person, but also, I think, uh, very interestingly, being somebody who really, really knows quite a lot about the Far East and really from the very first studied it. So from the very first, he was pointing to them as an example and very from the very first pointing to problems with our track and trace and testing system. So I think we would have had... Of course, of course, they did precede this government, didn't they? Not least when the previous government was in power, because it doesn't emerge overnight. Uh, the, 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 not the problems with just... I think if had we bought testing, testing equipment, had we had early on, um, and had we started encouraging people mm. to wear masks early on, I think we could have controlled... Yeah, more than, than we did. It was a sin of omission, really. We were just very, very slow to respond. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
John, I'd like to come back to, to Asia and uh, the rise of, of Asia, but particularly China, where I think you both go a bit further in this book than anything I've seen you write before, in the direction of suggesting that sort of warts and all, and I certainly wouldn't suggest if either of you are in any way apologists for the worst side of the, the Chinese regime and, and its repression of human rights. But there is, it's a kind of happy coincidence if you're the the biggest country in Asia, you are the, the dragon and you are the big country in the global economy, that this plays to your strengths. If you are keen on finding out everything you can about your citizens, track and trace is very obviously a bit easier if you don't have so many uh, concerns in the first place uh, about the individual liberty of, of your citizens. So I just wondered whether there wasn't a danger that your argument starts out, if you like, at the, the Singapore end, and that I might also have a few more you know, more unhappinesses that, that both of you seem to have about Singapore. But it, it leads you towards saying, well, look, it's OK as long as you can kind of win in this COVID game. Do you not worry a bit about that? Well, yeah, I do. I worry about that from a different angle. Um, I, I worry about it first and to the extent that I think many people will look around the world. I think many people will look around the world and they will reach this rather strange kind of false positive. They, they will look and they will see that China has done better than America and they'll jump from that to thinking autocracies are better at dealing with this than, than, than democracies. And I, that, that is just not true. China, yes, China did a bit, did better than America for the reasons we said, but you know, look at the, look at other places. The other autocracies generally did quite badly. Iran, Russia, Kazakhstan. You wouldn't have wanted to be any of those. And you certainly would not want to be in North Korea when this disease struck. By contrast, most of the places we mentioned earlier, Japan, Taiwan, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, they, these are all democracies. They did better. So in general, democracy did better. You are right also on this point that autocracies, you know, if, there, if there's one thing that autocracies should be pretty good at, it is managing to discipline people. But actually, again, you know, a bit like when we were talking about testing, most of the reasons why, in our judgment, most of the reasons why these Asian countries did better was not, you know, China's maybe the one exception where it's not because of autocratic reasons, it's just simply because they know how to run things better. If you want a kind of example of this, you have the Shanghai subway system. What they have there is if you get onto the subway car, you have to show your phone where you get on. And so they then know that if COVID does happen, they can trace you. Now, you can read that in two ways. You can say, ah, oh, how spooky, how, how, um, how dodgy. That's exactly the way that authoritarian China works. And it is. And I don't like that. On the other hand, there's a real basic fact. There is no way in, you could ever hope to do that on the London Underground, let alone New York's one, because the infrastructure is so out of date. And you look around Asian cities, they are just much more modern. They're better. Again, that's helped Seoul in the difference. And so that's the reason why I think in terms of the authoritarian thing definitely matters, and it probably gave China a bit of a bit of an advantage in some bits of it. It was a massive disadvantage to China when the disease broke out, because people were too scared of Xi Jinping to, to do to do anything about it. So I think it's a sort of mixed picture on autocracy. But the, the main thing is just you know are they doing th are they running governments better? And the horrible thing to say is that when you look at figures like schools, education is the most obvious one because there are standardized tests around the world. China, again, cheats a bit on those tests by only doing some places, but it's moved up those ones very, very fast, and it's beginning to challenge. It's, it claims it's ahead of places like Singapore and some of the Scandinavian countries and Korea. But again, it's those names at the top of this. And the, the basic thing about COVID is if you asked us before it, who would who would be able to deal with this? Anyone who follows government, you made this point. You know, th these are people who are doing health and education better than us already. So mm. perhaps it's not surprising they didn't do it. And the surprising thing, in some ways, is that China seems to come along a lot further on that path than we thought. And they did do one thing: they learnt much more quickly from SARS. SARS, they mm. took a long time to react to. This one, yes, they messed up at the beginning. But then they began to look and they made it publicly available to the West as well. Adrian, you and John have written books together looking at big global trends for a lot of years. I wasn't even going to try and guess how many because I'm bound to be wrong either way, but they're still looking pretty young on it. Do you disagree on anything? Because I everything. can see how once you start to get into everything, it says John, once you get into this, well, I think the you know, 
Asia's got it right, China's rising, Britain's terrible, uh, America's not much better. Do you sometimes just sit there and say, no, I don't agree with that? And if so, where were those points? You can tell us. I'm I'm more naturally drawn towards raging against the elites than John is because I'm a member of the the broad masses, whereas he's a member of the elites. That's that's I'm more sympathetic with populism. I would imagine that we disagree about immigration. I would not be as liberal about immigration as I, I used to be, and as I would imagine he still is, because I think it's helped to destabilize the uh, the Britain and uh, in some ways the Western political system. But um, obviously, we, we broadly agree we're in the, the tradition of classical liberalism. But I think the question is how one preserves classical liberalism in an age of illiberal populism, how far you go to compromise with the populists and try and absorb their energies and defang their energies, and how far you just stick to your guns. I think that is the interesting debate at the moment. And I think on the margins of that, we would disagree. But uh, on the central issue, I think that we, 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 we agree on most things or else we wouldn't be writing these books with the incredible speed that we do. Exactly. I would ask if you're huddled up together. I suppose you can't be. You must be doing it all on, on Zoom in your pyjamas. I think it's a very good time to go to questions because I can see there's a, a, a number coming in here. And I, this one came in very early. It's just always a sign of someone who really came into the room saying, you need to know this, folks. Can you think of a single government policy in the area of education, housing, health or the economy since 1997? So I suppose that refers to the beginning of the Blair years and New Labour's election that has moved the needle in a positive way for the UK. The questioner says, I have not long moved back to Britain, living in Asia for 20 two years it feels that the country has been stuck on pause for a long time john your thoughts well I've, I've one example i would say that the go some of the tories education reforms that you were I, I would give quite a lot of credit we've been rude about um the, the current government on that i think what michael gove tried to do on education was a step in that direction and int- interestingly yes he was looking he was looking at scandinavia and he was looking at the far east and, and, and in many ways actually on that, you know, the surprising thing is that people don't look. I mean, it's staggering. In, in the private sector, you either copy. If someone's doing something better than you on the other side of the world, you're going to get destroyed by it. So you copy it immediately. And what's bizarre about government is people don't do it. And in one part, at the, at the end of the book, we, we come up with this mythical figure, a guy called Bill Lincoln, who's a mixture between William Gladstone and Abraham Lincoln. But when we tell him to go and do, we, we set him the task of reforming America. But the limit we place on him is only that he can only use things that other governments already are. And what's interesting about it, you asked about the difference between America and Britain, the, the sort of things that we, when we do talks in America, they say that's impossible. Nobody would ever do that with teachers. And you say, well, actually, they do that in Sweden and they do that in Asia. And people just don't know this stuff. And actually, if nothing else, if this book tells people, look, you could have a much better, smaller, but far more useful public sector that actually really helped the poor and helped children and helped health and did all those things, you know, then then that that is we we've we've served a purpose. Bill Lincoln has already fallen foul of a lot of diversity criteria. I just need to tell it to you. Next next time you do one it's gonna have to be a bit different. But Adrian, do you agree with that example or something else? Yeah, I was going to add to John's example the example of devolution of giving more power to city mayors, particularly in Birmingham and Manchester, because we are in many ways, the most centralised country in the, the, the modern Western world. And one of the many things that COVID has demonstrated, that this high degree of centralisation is a real problem. We need to, we need to continue the process of, of, of devolution of power and responsibility. The other thing I would say on the diversity criteria is that, although, of course, you're right, we were, taking, we were trying to take the two best figures from the sort of the great period of high Victorian liberalism. And I'm afraid you are limited unless you bring in Florence Nightingale in some strange way. You are limited to, to, to men at that time um, when it comes to the, you know, the great offices of state. Uh, because what we wanted to show in this book is that liberalism has been capable of reinventing itself, has been capable of rising to huge challenges in the past. In the middle of the 19th century, what liberalism did was to take a state that was bloated, that was full of sinecures that, you know, everybody get, got jobs for their, uh, for their cousins. And the elite. 
and children, the elite, and to show that you could reform it according to lean government uh, liberal principles whilst keeping at the heart of government principles of accountability and individual freedom. So what we wanted to say is that we need to do, bring exactly the same spirit to what's going on now on liberal principles, reform government, get rid of sinecures, the modern equivalent of sinecures, get rid of the modern equivalent of nepotism, focus on customer service, focus on competition and meritocracy, and preserve at the heart of liberalism freedom and accountability, to address your earlier points uh, uh, about China. Let's get a couple more questions in. There was a very neat escape from my gender diversity challenge there by my colleague. Don't think it didn't go uh, unnoticed. Christopher Clement Davis says, does your book discuss a tension between freedom and successful government? This is surely the heart of the matter. China can achieve its government objectives with relative ease because constraints to protect individual freedoms are far weaker. I I know you guys had a a go earlier to say, well, yeah, that that might be be true, but it's still quite good. But I think uh, the question in there puts his his finger on it. And I'm going to append a question because it's a short one, but a very uh, trenchant one. Should China build 5G in the UK? There you go. John. I'll let, I'll let China, I'll let Adrian do the China and China, the 5G in the UK. On the, on the, uh, freedom, quickly on the diversity, I'll merely make one point is that the person who emerges best from our book and has certainly emerged best from COVID, not least as I think the leader of the free world, rather reluctant, you might argue retiring one, is Angela Merkel. And if you were going to construct a, a composite of people to run any country now, you'd probably take her and Jacinta Ahern. But yes, we did choose the, the old dead white males, but that's, that would be part of that. Are you going with the modern liberal icons? <laughs> yes, so freedom, freedom, freedom versus security. It's quite interesting. That's always been, you look at the basic, we have a lot of history in our book. You look at the way that people have gone through government theory right from the very beginning. You have Thomas Hobbes wrote Leviathan, a time when, as we, I said earlier, you know, Europeans were being slaughtered on an untold scale. There's only, the English Civil War was unbelievably bloody. One of the discoveries for me in this book was just, just how many people got slaughtered in that. The whole 17th century, I think there were only three years when European countries, there wasn't wars going on somewhere. So at the time, the idea of saying we need a, we need a government, to, the first duty of a government to provide security was incredibly important jump forward to the era that Adrian was talking about, John Stuart Mill, the whole issue of individual liberty against that became ever more important. And, and what's, what's interesting about the current era is that we've all sort of slightly taken the security side of government for granted. You know, the, the fact that they would protect us from disease, the fact that they would protect us from wars, they would, they would do that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And so most of the debates, if you go to universities, most of the debates are almost sort of Assume that's a given and they move on to talk about fairness or gender or identity or one of those. But actually, what we discovered during COVID is if a government can't provide you with security, you know, I think it's fair to say on the whole, the British government did sort of fail that basic Hobbesian test. So yes, it is there, but for what it's worth in our book, you know, the end of it, we, we focus on what a new sort of liberal state might look like. We, We still think that liberty is the West's great advantage. But if you and that actually very little to do with the reasons why other people were better have anything really to do with that thing of liberty and security. And, it, and it's the same when you look at education or whatever. It's not it's, it's, it's not difficult to have a system where you pay some people a lot more to, to be teachers and you sack bad ones. That's all that Singapore does. There's no magic technology. It just simply pays good teachers more and it sacks bad ones. That's why their schools are better than ours. It's an anti-egalitarian agenda then, just to put the tail on the donkey. Yeah. Right. OK, Adrian, I mean, please pick up on any of that. But uh, John kindly left you the small matter of whether China should be building 5G uh, in the UK and all the arguments we, we know have followed about that balance between uh, getting the best out of uh, technology and staying ahead in that race and security. Well, the only possible argument for letting China build 5G is a practical one, that it's cheaper and better. But I think that's massively outweighed by the fact that the world is splitting into two political camps and increasingly to sort of two technology camps, or at least technology is an instrument of political power. We can't just sit in the middle, I think. We have to say, are we going to go with China or are we going to go with the United States? I think it would be foolish to go with China. So... In all, it may, may, there may be a short-term term hit because 
5G is is cheaper when it comes to the Huawei route. But that, that's that's minor compared with the long term fact that, you know, we are just seeing two, two very different worlds. We, 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 you know, Ericsson will pay, pay a bit more for Ericsson or something. Like that. So you wouldn't build it. You would you would take the hit. Now, John's a bit unfair because you passed it over to Adrian. But hey, uh, here uh, you see you're in the middle of the big China US trade war standoff. Would you give the benefit of the doubt to something? Call it at the feet of. 5G style infrastructure project, or would you err on the side of the securocrats? Well, the securocrats is—it's interesting on that. You could go. I'm going to—I'm going to give you an, an advertisement for my day job. If you go to the Bloomberg website, you could look at something called the Huawei Barometer, and what that does is it shows the number of countries around the world who have banned Huawei. And from an American point of view, it's unbelievably depressing. I mean, here is something that the Americans, for better or worse, have been lecturing the world about and telling them they should do this. Basically, in Europe, you've got Britain somewhat. You know, we've, we've closed down on some bits. You've got places like Germany. Germany is saying no. You've got pretty much the whole of the Asian democracies are continuing to use it. You've got most of the rest of the world. There's very few places. There's basically Japan, Taiwan. I think Australia's done it. It's like four or five places. And this, to me, is the ultimate condemnation of American foreign policy at the moment. Donald Trump may well be right, and for all the reasons we've all just agreed, in identifying China as the great you know, natural competitor. But his way of winning that war has been so disastrous. I mean, firstly, not to use allies. If your allies don't love you enough, even when you're telling them that you must not use the system, they won't listen to it. That's one problem. If you keep on saying America first, you will not persuade allies to join you. And that brings me to the second point, is that there has been far too little talk from the United States about liberty, about freedom. America won the last Cold War by bringing allies onto its side and talking about liberty. On this one, it isn't. And I think the Huawei thing completely shows that. If you, if you don't talk about freedom, no matter sometimes how hypocritically or you, you, know, you make mistakes, if your message is just simply America first, then you don't persuade people when it comes to issues like this. Let's take a segue to something broader, which I suppose underpins a lot of the arguments that that we're having today, but also the way that, that they travel around the world. What are your thoughts on liberalism's position on social media? Is a question. When you have tech companies that control and concentrate so much power, how can you have a liberal society? Adrian, you cited the high Victorian liberal ideals and indeed practitioners but even your Bill Lincoln would have also faced a particularly ferocious challenge had there been an equivalent of Mark Zuckerberg and co. Not only Mark Zuckerberg, but certainly you know, the, the might of the social media companies arising at the same time. Am I right? Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 what, what, this is a problem for liberals because on the one hand, liberals like competition and capitalism, and these are great capitalist country, companies that have got to where they are primarily through, through competition and making very, very good decisions very early on. Uh, Amazon being a classic example of, uh, you know, people who sacrifice short-term profits in order to, to gain long-term market dominance. And we said, as a, as a business, it's absolutely fantastic. So on the one hand, liberals, I think, like competition and capitalism. On the other hand, liberals are really worried about concentrations of power. Liberalism is in many ways just a protest against concentrations of power, whether it's in the hands of aristocrats or monarchs or the government or companies. And I think ultimately what matters more than anything else is this opposition to concentrations of power. So I think we have to try and do our best to break up those concentrations of power, even if it means a certain degree of, uh, of state intervention. I would hope that the market would do it. And that's the market has done it with, with, with Microsoft, for example. I remember the days when we were all absolutely terrified that Microsoft was going to completely dominate the world. And we had a, a huge antitrust case on the basis of that. And just as that antitrust case went through, Microsoft was losing its grip and its power to, to, to better rivals. So one would hope that, that is the way forward. When it comes to, to Twitter, and social media. Again, this is a huge problem for, for, for liberals, because on the one hand, liberals liberals like the idea of freedom of speech, the, the, the more voices, the better. But there is a yeah. sense in which bad information drives out good information. And there is a sense in which a public which is not educated or which is, which is subject to rumour and gossip will make bad decisions in a democracy, that, 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 that bad decisions drive out 
good decisions and the endless twittering on the basis of, uh, of poor information is a danger to a democratic Policy. And again, I think the way to push back against that is to improve the quality of education, but also to have uh, high level public broadcasting. I, you know, for a long time, I was a critic of the BBC. I would now defend the BBC, at least in the form of, of, of television, uh, in a decent form of news, because I think it's very, very important, as America has shown, that we have some sort of gold standard news broadcasting that everybody should point to. And I think one of the many, many reasons that the United States has made such a holics of COVID thing is there is no there's no standard of right or wrong. MSNBC and CNN now belong to different realities. They don't just have a different slant on the news. They have different realities. I think that we have. Did you really mean MSNBC and CNN, or do you mean and someone else? No, MS, sorry, MSNBC and Fox. I mean, they did, sorry. Uh, I was going to say that's a narcissism of small differences. You're on there, but anyway, I I, I think I got the drift. But apologies for interrupting. <laughs> Uh, but John, that's that's a very interesting take from Adrian, which suggests, and we can bring this perhaps a, a bit back to the idea that you of your book, uh, which is that a lot is going to change, and that this is going to be a bit, in some way, an inflection point, even if we can't entirely see how it will change the world. But it does seem that it comes at a time when liberalism is a bit on the back foot and struggling with, um, throw you social media as an example, but please range beyond it, that the challenges. I would say when I even when I joined the, the Economist and there was a sort of sense that you could have a big argument about what liberalism, but now it almost feels like the challenges are bigger than the arguments within it. Yes, I think that's true. I think that, that, that liberalism does face challenges. We we still think that it it works, so to speak, but it's faced a succession of different troubles. It's, it faced the problem of kind of uh, globalization, which you're bound to have a system the more global economy where the people at the top will get rewarded more because it's a bigger economy. And so that opened up lots of issues of fairness, especially when those people at the top, when it came to financial crisis, didn't get into it. And I think that's one of the reasons why you end up with the populists. In my, it, to give you a very big pretentious view of the future of politics in the West, I think there are two big themes. You know, one is the issue of fairness and equality, and that maybe pulls society to the left. And the other is the one we write about in this book. It's about, you know, why doesn't government work? Why is it not using? And that probably drives people to the right, although we would argue it should be it should be both sides. It's not, you know, we've we've given Trump a tough time in this in this uh, talk so far. But just you know, just stand back and look at why America messed up on COVID and what it should do in the future. Well, it's not Trump's fault that the health system has been built primarily to look after the old and the rich rather than the poor. So it's not really his fault that doctors in New York were sitting there wearing goggles, ski goggles, because they didn't have enough equipment. That's part of the system if you end up with something which is pushed towards elective surgery for richer, older people. It's certainly, you know, we've had all the stuff about um, uh, George Floyd. You're saying this all happened earlier, including in the era when a lot of people hark back to Obama and Obamacare and the ideas of remaking the health system. Yes, I still, I personally, you know, we, in the book, we argue strongly that America should have a universal healthcare system. It did not, I think Obamacare did not solve that. It would, it, it did it in a very, very complicated way. And, and the reason why, the reason why we think that, we think that America should have a universal healthcare system, A, because we think that is a matter of sort of liberal decency. But the second reason why is that we think it would be a lot cheaper. You look at, you look at Sweden. I mean, all this talk about socialist medicine in America. Sweden spends less per head on its public health system, its public health system in America. And the reason why is you don't have this nightmare, which I think all three of us at different times have had of co-payments and this type of thing and that type, whether you qualify or not. Americans spend a fortune on healthcare and don't get a great result for it. So they should look at those sort of things again. But there is 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 an issue on the way. They, They do come together. If you want to look after the poor, if you want to look at schools, then you're on the left, one of the big problems you've got to deal with the public sector unions. And so when Joe Biden comes in, you know, you look at all those problems. I talked about racist policing. I, I used to cover, I covered Rodney King 30 years ago. You look at the schools that we've talked about repeatedly. American schools have been behind these ones in Asia and Scandinavia for a very long time. Those aren't well, that, Donald Trump. But, but, but Joe Biden said, courtesy of his wife, who's a former teacher, that the teaching unions would have a representative in the White House. What was your well, that, response? That's to that? a problem. That's a big problem. 
I think that is, you know, the, the problem with the, to be very simplistic, and you see echoes of this in, in Britain, but it's, it's much stronger in America. The problem is that the, the right to simplify enormously thinks the only answer to problems to a government is to make government ever smaller. Well, if, if you want ever smaller government, go to the Congo. Um, there you have close to zero government, and it's not really that pleasant. Mm -hmm. The left's problem is that they, they, they are fantastically tied to the producers of government rather than the customers. So teachers unions are the ultimate example. We talked about Singapore and the fact there they promote good teachers, pay them a lot of money or pay them a lot more money than they get elsewhere. But on the other hand, they sack bad teachers. That's not something which at the moment the Democrats are on. And despite everything we've said, you look at the democratic platform, there's virtually nothing about reforming government. So to my mind, at least, Joe Biden is a bit like someone getting a hospital pass in rugby where you pass the ball towards someone and he's spending his entire time staring at this election, this ball flying towards him without realizing he's going to have to actually try and fix this stuff once he's in, if he it, does get in. A couple of uh, more questions just is coming. I've got a lot on, on China. So that, that's obviously exercising our audience tonight. Feel free to send in anything else in our closing 10 minutes or so. But I, I'll try to aggregate the, the, the China ones that go a bit broader, if you, you'll forgive me, the, than purely uh, regional. Here is one from uh, Hilton Phillipson. Given their more effective system of government, do you have more confidence in China's commitment to be carbon neutral by 2050 than our own commitment to do the same? Well, that would upend some of the uh, trajectory of re recent years on, on emissions. Uh, Adrian, that's a, it's, a, it's a provocatively put, but it's an interesting question. China has been fantastically good at setting itself unimaginably big goals and actually achieving them. And I think an autocratic system like theirs is probably going to be better at achieving goals of carbon neutral ends than, than the West. The West can do it more subtly, perhaps, but I think it's very, very hard because there are so many people who have to make sacrifices and in a democratic system that's hard to achieve. What worries me about China is not that it's not capable of doing big things, not that it's not capable of, of, of generating rapid economic growth or even doing good things like becoming carbon neutral. What worries me about it is that underneath it all is an aversion to liberty and democracy and that the sacrifices that you make to get these big things achieved are too big. And I think that what we need in the, in the West in order to avert this is, is what we call tough-minded liberalism. In order to save liberalism, we need to be a lot more tough-minded, both in the way that we organise governments and in the way that we defend freedom. And the trouble is we're very flabby about a lot of important things at the moment. So never underestimate your opponents. And in this case, in particular, never underestimate China's ability to set itself audacious goals and to achieve many things that people in the West would, would, would quite like to achieve and do it more impressively than us, but at huge cost. Harry Briggs asks, John, do you believe that China's economic preeminence is now an inevitability and that consequently military preeminence will follow? I mean, one could unpack that as, as you wish, but you mentioned security earlier, and I often wonder whether the international security compact is the thing that might be fraying underneath all of this while we, we are distracted by our immediate concerns and crises. I think in terms of the economy, there's no, I mean, th th this is the interesting reason. The, the reason why we called this book The Wake Up, we could have called it You're Finished. <laughs> we, we, we didn't call it, we, we called it The Wake Up Call. And the reason why is because the West still has a lot of enduring strengths. You know, you, we look at the vaccines, most of those are going to the West because our private sector is still pretty good, especially, especially America. But the, the, the ability of people to work on that side of the fence is incredibly good. As I said earlier, if you compare, yes, China, China, bits of China's economic preeminence, you would expect to happen just purely by weight of population. However, you've got a demographic challenge there, which might catch them up. You've got the problems of toxic, the problems of corruption. The main point, again, you look at the democracies of the world and you add them up. You add up, if, if, if you were running, if, if, if somebody was clever enough to put Anne McElvoy in charge of America, the first thing you would look at if you wanted to compete against America is you would, against China, is you, you would look at the world. If you put Europe and America to, together and you start negotiating with China as one on economic issues, things change pretty dramatically. If you add the democracies of Asia, if you add India, Japan, Indonesia, these sort of countries, then really it begins to tell. 
And so the challenge for the West, I think, is is to, to be able to manage China's rise by 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 negotiating with it. On the issue of military, it's very difficult to see. There have been a number of military reports recently which have seemed to imply that China has been very shrewd about where it's bought, and particularly on the issue of Taiwan, that it's trying to build up exactly the sort of weapons you would need if you ever wanted to do that. But in general, American defense spending is still out of all proportions to anybody else's. It's still much bigger. But again, on the issue of Taiwan, they've got to defend somewhere which is a long way away. The, the last thing I would say about China's military side is, so far, its kind of ambitions in that regard seem to be pretty limited to things around it. Um, it's, uh, and, there was and actually a question, I'll just depend on the future of Taiwan, seeing as you touched on it, John. Could you see Beijing escalating militarily? If you just want to touch on that before probably we come to our final round. I mean, I think everyone, one of the great aims of the West should be to prevent that ever coming around. But there is there is a problem at the moment to the extent that if you go back to what I said, talked about the West earlier, you know, the great failure. And again, we in you know, how, when we call this book, you know, the problems of the pandemic and how to fix the, the weakness of the West and how to fix it. The biggest thing you can do for the West at the moment beyond fixing government, but not closely related to that, is to expand the idea of the West to get these countries in, in, in Asia on its side, because Taiwan illustrates that. The only, you know, if China really, really, really wants to take Taiwan, it can do so. But if it faces the wrath, not just of America, but of all the regional economies for that, you know, that, then that makes a huge difference. Japan, India, these are huge countries that would have an interest in that. So yes, the answer is, you know, none of nobody could safely predict that Taiwan would be fine, but it'd be a lot more likely to be fine if it's got a much wider sort of guarantee than just America. Adrian, that was a, a question specifically about Taiwan, but I guess it's a, it brings us to perhaps some closing thoughts for from each of you. What should we do in what order? I think one thing that happens with COVID is we get a kind of into a bit of a sort of funk that we think we've got these immediate problems. We've got our problems in our workplaces, even if we're lucky enough to still have secure employment. We're worried. We're worried about our elderly relatives. We're worried about our kids going off to university and how they're going to, to find that. And also we can see beyond that that unemployment looming and far worse challenges perhaps also for younger generations even than we're facing now what should we do in what order your very haiku like wish list for the world after covid i think what we should do is understand that covid has revealed something more than just a problem with a pandemic it's revealed a geopolitical shift that the power has been shifting much more quickly from the west to china and the east than we had imagined, that we still have a certain amount of time left to alter that. We still can take a government seriously and get into a business of government reform. We still can reconstruct the architecture of the Western alliance and Western cooperation. We still have time to do that, but it's much, much later than we thought it was. So COVID is an appalling thing, but let's learn some lessons from it and let's make sure we don't just apply those lessons to fixing the local hospital, but to a much, much broader program of revivifying Western government. Never let a good crisis go to waste, is the old saying in, in politics, John Micklethwaite. Your wake-up call, I suppose it's a number of wake-up calls that you and Adrian lay out in the, in the book, but hey, you know, you, you're used to having to, to come up with priorities, and if you absolutely had to come up with your priorities, what you would do fastest and furthest in, in terms of impact, what would you do now? Well, I, I'll change the thing and, and aim a bit at the audience to this. The people who come to Intelligence Squared debates, as we pointed out, tend to be from the elite, much criticised by Adrian. But the biggest thing about the Western Western public sector, Britain and America above everything, is the fact the divorce from the elite. In back, go back to the 1960s. That was the last time when Americans had trust in our government. It was the last time also when the best and the brightest went to Washington. And we have exactly the same problem in, in, in Britain as well. So at least part of the solution involves better people going to public sector, better going to public sector, better people going to government. And that, I think, would not just be good for government, be good for society as well. And one of the things we talk about in the book is the idea of non, non-military national service, the idea that everyone should go and spend a year doing Gosh. something for the government. And at least part of the reason for that is, is, is because, one, we think 
you'd end up with a more efficient government at all with these kids from Oxford, Cambridge and London School of Economics went into it. But secondly, you would end up with much more uh, social cohesion. We quote, I'll just very quickly say at the end, we use the example of an old British spy who tells us that his his children are more intelligent, more tolerant than him, like many of the people on this call, but none of them have really had much class with working, with touch with working class children, except when they deliver their internet shopping. And that, I think, they haven't shared trenches with them, they haven't shared billets with them. And that, I think, is part of all this. It's the desire to get the sort of clever people who are on this call suddenly interested in government and doing things for, for it. And I think that makes a big difference. Elites still the dividing line? Can't resist last last word from Adrian because it, it does seem that John. I mean, you generously included you know Oxford, Cambridge, and the LSE in that in that description. Are elites the more the problem than the solution? Or the other way around. Last word to you. The elites is too cut off from the rest of the country. They can become the solution if they reconnect themselves with the rest of with the with the rest of society. Stop floating off into a sort of self indulgent echo chamber of their own and start becoming part of a broad national community. Well, thank you very much, Adrian and John, for that. Uh, the wake-up call for, from COVID. Do read their book and feel free to argue with them on Twitter. To our audience and, of course, to Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – and we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.